need to just double check on everybody's backups. Shepard, do you have a phone? Yeah, I have an iPhone recording right now. Can we be sure that's on like a pile of books so it's as close to your mouth as possible? It's about eight inches from my mouth. I had Derek Smalls measure it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive the most Spinal Tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is artist and activist Shepard Ferry, who created the Obama Hope poster and the iconic Andre the Giant image, which turned into his Obey art campaign and clothing line. We're going to talk to Shepard about the time he cried to his dad because YMCA was no longer number one on the charts, why he considered adding an asterisk to an Ozzy Osbourne tour poster, and the reason he considers ex-Black Flag frontman and spoken word artist Henry Rollins to be such an inspiration. So without further ado, let's go to the TME. P show. It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, we're facing some trying times here, wouldn't you say? <laughs> There's some things that will make you want to say, what the F? Yeah, like what the F with climate change and rising authoritarianism and gun violence. These things really actually put the F in effing, don't you think? And I'm effing frustrated, too, that more artists and entertainers aren't using their platforms to advocate for change. The good news is there are exceptions like Jon Stewart, who laid it all on the line recently to get that bill passed that helps veterans expose to toxins. But I agree. Celebrities can do more, use their pull to motivate others. And, you know, speaking about motivating others, where the F is punk rock? I mean, back in the 70s, you had the Sex Pistols and Billy Bragg fighting Margaret Thatcher in the National Front. In the 80s, you had the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag going to war against Ronald Reagan. I mean, ever since 2016, I've been waiting for a punk renaissance. But where is it? It's been pretty quiet. True. But I think we can say that one of those who is definitely not been quiet is artist Shepard Ferry. Mm -hmm. Shepard uses his art and his voice to raise awareness for a whole range of issues from voting rights to human rights to equal rights. Yeah, he's on the right side of so many issues. And a guy like that with such a large following can inspire a lot of people to get involved. I know I personally got involved in politics because I was shamed by the activism of a hilarious friend of mine, Andy Cobb. But you know what? You know who else inspired me, Alex? You when you started your business, Changeance? Yeah, that was a startup that was focused on being a social network for social good. We told the stories of change agents, as the name suggests. I will say that a lot of people with bigger brains and bigger wallets have taken a shot at that same idea and have had it tank. So I don't feel so bad that ours didn't pan out either, but you know. Well, whether Changeance succeeded or failed, 
it's the right effing perspective because we all need to come up with some good ideas to get through this muck we're going through. Yeah, too much mucking perspective. Well, let's get to the muckraker himself, artist Shepard Ferry. But first, please, if you like the podcast, tell three friends and then they'll tell three friends and then the more popular of them will tell five friends and the less popular might only tell one person. But ultimately, we'll get this groundswell of exponential growth and we'll have you to thank for it. And we'll give you stock options. <laughs> but first, let's have a little break. And now a guy who, after getting kicked out of the North Carolina School of the Arts, attended the same high school as my daughter, Sunny, artist Shepard Ferry. Shepard, you have a great story about the day you actually went to see Spinal Tap. Yeah, I had a good friend at the private school where I had gone first through ninth grade. And he said, you got to see this movie. And so I, I went over to his house, didn't really know what to expect. But just from the get go, I loved the film. I was always a kind of sarcastic kid. And I loved pop culture references. I loved comedy shows. So I see the movie and you know, it's great all the way through. There's so many good scenes, but I think the hardest I've ever laughed was the Stonehenge scene. You know, I was paying pretty close attention, but it slipped right by me when Nigel is drawing the schematic for Stonehenge and the <laughs> set piece creator, Angelica Houston, is then given the napkin and she brings the piece in and... Well, this is the piece. This is the piece? Yes. Are you telling me that this is it? Nigel had written 18 inches instead of feet. Look, 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 this is what I was asked to build. 18 inches, right here, it's specified, 18 inches. I was given this napkin, I mean. Forget this, fuck the napkin. I mean, first of all, that scene is amazing, just the screw up, because it's something that really could happen. <laughs> um, it's not really that believable that she wouldn't say, are you sure you meant inches? Well, yeah, she's a set designer, right? <laughs> but then when they play it and just in the middle of the song, the 18 inch Stonehenge is dropping from the ceiling, you know, and then it just gets worse from there. The dwarves they have dancing on stage are knocking it about. And then the aftermath where they're picking up the pieces of this tragic moment. And of course, I love Derek Smalls because Everything is really underplayed by him. So he goes, um, you know, I raise a practical question. Are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow night? And they're like, no, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge. But he's like, what if we change the choreography to keep the dwarves clear? And I mean, <laughs> in that moment in the movie, I was laughing so hard that I had a cramp in my stomach and there were tears running down my face. And when I went home, it was 10th grade. My curfew was probably still like 11 o'clock. My parents were still awake. And when I walked in the front door, I was thinking about the film and I just kept bursting into uncontrollable laughter. And then I hear my dad say, son, come to my room right now. Come over here. He's <laughs> like, your eyes look red. Have you been smoking pot tonight? And I was like, no, dad, I just saw a really funny movie. You know, I think if I smoked pot, I'd be a little more careful to camouflage this. But this is the movie Spinal Tap. You got to see it. You'll understand. But he did not understand at all. And the next morning I was taken to his office. He's a doctor, 
to draw blood to give me a drug test. Wow. Yeah. So I can give Spinal Tap credit for my first drug test. (laughs) (laughs) My version of that, I was asked by the Prophets of Rage, which is everybody from Rage Against the Machine except Zach plus Be Real and Chuck D doing some Cypress Hill and some Public Enemy songs. But I did their album package and I did their stage backdrop, which they asked me to design based on certain dimensions for the Palladium. But I made it to the exact specs of the stage. And then later I see photos and it's all bunched up down at the bottom like some really awful pleated khakis because the ceilings were lower in all the other venues. (laughs) So my backdrop was not in its best shape for the other venues. Now, nobody's perfect, but it wouldn't be fun to talk about how infrequently you have typos. Let's talk about the one typo that you did have in a poster. A pretty prominent one, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's another Spinal Tap moment for me. I looked it up and I saw it. I, yeah, I have a few of it's them. It's more subtle than I thought, but it's it's there. Yeah, I pride myself on researching the subjects that I portray in my art, whether it's people's biographies or any political or social issues, so that I feel like I can make an educated presentation that I can stand behind. And, you know, I've even called out other people who were lazy and made mistakes. And sure enough, uh, <laughs> this is not a good one for me to have made a mistake on. I love Noam Chomsky. And I even made one Noam Chomsky poster that was a portrait of him mixed with the style of the first Clash album. And then it said at the bottom, I lived with the system and took no offense until Chomsky lent me the necessary sense, sung to the tune of the Magnificent Seven by the Clash. (laughs) So that was all fine. But I did a series called Most of My Heroes Don't Appear on Stamps. That was a paraphrasing of a Chuck D lyric from Fight the Power. And it was Joe Strummer from The Clash, Noam Chomsky, Bob Marley, and Bobby Seale from The Black Panthers, all illustrated in stamp format. And part of it was that you realize that subconsciously the style of presentation of something determines its legitimacy. And so the powers that be, when they want to delegitimize someone, they say that they're un-American or they're deviant. And when they want to legitimize someone, they put them in a a really glorious stamp. So I did this portrait of Noam Chomsky and in it, it says human rights advocate and professor of linguistics. Now I misspelled professor. (laughs) I put two F's in (laughs) professor, which I know how to spell professor, but sometimes when I'm typing and it's going into a graphic, when I'm working in illustrator, if it looks well-resolved, I'm not even looking at it as language anymore. I'm just looking at it as part of a graphic. But then I printed it and realized as I was releasing it that it had a mistake. But I was really broke then, so I couldn't (laughs) afford to reprint it. And I crossed my fingers. No one noticed except for Matt Ross, the actor-director who played uh, Gavin in Silicon Valley. And he made a film called Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. And in that, they celebrate Noam Chomsky Day. And I did the poster for that film. So Matt and I were talking about that. And he said, yeah, you know, I 
one of the reasons I reached out to you to do the poster is because I love your work and I love Noam Chomsky. And I have your Noam Chomsky poster and you misspelled professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a typical dick move by Gavin Belson. Yeah. You know, Matt Ross is a great comedic actor, but he's dead serious when it comes to craft. I did one time speak to Christopher Guest about potentially directing an ad spot. And he's the same way, dead serious about the craft. He says that, you know, the humor doesn't come from you trying to be funny. Yeah. The humor comes from the genuine awkwardness of the moment being funny. And I thought that was a great articulation that I'd never really considered precisely like that. But I, you know, I really appreciated that when I looked back at whether it was A Mighty Wind or Best in Show or any number of their films, the ways in which the bits are funny is not because the people are trying to be funny. My other Spinal Tap moment, which I'm so glad that I had Spinal Tap as a reference because otherwise I might have gone into a deep depression. But in 2002, which, you know, was 20 years ago now, but I still had already been doing my thing for 13 years at that point. And the My Obey and, and Andre the Giant stickers were pretty well known in the underground. I was asked to do a little exhibit and signing at Urban Outfitters in Philadelphia. And the guys who worked at Urban Outfitters, they had their own print shop. They printed up a bunch of posters of my images. They plastered the front windows of the store, which is in a really great area of Philly downtown. They said that they did promotion for it. And I go there with an expectation that, you know, there'll be some people there. Five people showed up and two of them were Urban Outfitters employees who just hung out and chatted with me. It was my most Spinal Tap moment. But you know what I felt at that time was that I let them down, not that they let me down. There was no Artie Fufkin to come in and say, sorry, we, you know, Kick my ass. Uh, we fucked up the timing. We oversaturated. <laughs> what about a relationship? <laughs> I felt like they had done so much work and that they backed the wrong horse. You know, they invested in the wrong artist. It was very embarrassing for me, but I did have good conversations with five people. <laughs> right. Now, when there's a lot of people at a signing, I'm like, all right, keep it to one minute per person. Nobody gets that quality time that those people at Urban Outfitters got. <laughs> <laughs> I was tour managing this band called The Samples out of Boulder, Colorado, and I don't even remember where we were, but went to an in-store, and it was one of those things where someone from a radio station picked us up at the hotel, took us over there. Everything was set up just like in Spinal Tap, and there was literally no one there. I mean, one or two people might have trickled in, and it was, again, straight from the film, archetypal. And after about 20 minutes, I said to the guy who brought us over, okay, well, obviously, no one's all that interested. Let's head back to the hotel. And he's like, no, we can't leave. We actually have a contract with the store that you'll be here for an hour and a half. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. We were truly stuck. <laughs> the indignities just are endless in those situations. Well, you know, I guess we're all lucky that anybody cares what we're doing. Who? 
Hulu has a documentary about your career called Obey Giant. And you speak about having the chance to work with many musicians who've inspired you and that count among your heroes. Any Spinal Tap moments that you can talk about from those collaborations? <laughs> oh, let's see. I've done several things with Black Sabbath and Ozzy. Oh. And I think it's okay for me to talk about this, but Sharon had me do the poster for Ozzy's final tour. Huh. And usually when I would do a Black Sabbath tour poster or an Ozzy poster, they would have me put a year on it. But I had my fears that the Ozzy thing might not happen when they said it was going to happen. And so I said, yeah, can we just not put a year on it? So if you want it to go longer than a year, you can draw it out. We can just put final tour. Well, I did the art. Sharon and Ozzy really liked it. I made the prints. First, Ozzy's tour is canceled because he's sick, which maybe he's sick or maybe he isn't. Then it was canceled again for him twisting his ankle or something like that. Then COVID hits. So I've been sitting on all these prints <laughs> for the Aussie tour. But luckily, you know, his final tour is going to, maybe it'll be his final tour. Maybe it, I'll have to print an asterisk on it. Hopefully there's no shelf life because I didn't put a year on it. That's pretty cool. Any others you can talk about? Henry Rollins is somebody that I've admired for a long time. I've done, I think, about 10 tour posters for him, including when the Rollins band reformed and toured with X. I love X. I've done some stuff with them. But, you know, Rollins, he might be the hardest working person I know. And still, still, he's insane. He makes me feel lazy all the time. And I work like 14 hours a day. So I really like to do projects with him. He's a kindred spirit. I've done stuff with Interpol, who I love. I've done stuff for Strummerville, Joe Strummer's charity. I did the Rolling Stones 50th anniversary logo. I've done two Led Zeppelin album packages. I've done four album packages for Billy Idol, multiple things for Iggy. So many of my heroes I've gotten to work with. I've done collaborations with Jamie Reed, who did all the Sex Pistols imagery. I've worked with Jello Biafra on several projects. Jello is another genius. He was probably the person that politicized me the most because when I listened to, I think like the third album I bought with my own money after YMCA was Plastic Surgery Disasters by the Dead Kennedys. And that has a song called Bleed For Me on it. And it's talking about American foreign policy and how Ronald Reagan forks out his tongue at human rights. And, America needs fuel, but to get it, it needs puppets. So what's 10 million dead if it's keeping out the Russians? I mean, you know, this is like stuff that really made me think critically and want to learn some things to have it not just be a stance that was coming from a lyric, but that I knew a little bit more about the topic. So yeah, Jello was really important. Jello's a very intense guy. I've done a few things with him, but still very authentic to who he's always been. Are you ever in the room with the people? Jello Biafra slept in our guest room, which also happened to be the room where I kept all my records, my DJ room. So Jello's a night owl. We worked on stuff together. We would stay up late and then he still wouldn't go to sleep at like four in the morning. He'd be up until eight in the morning, but he went through all my records and he found the ones that he was connected to like, the Kennedy's, Lard, 
Jell-O be offered with the Melvins. And he wrote funny notes on all of them, except for I had a copy of Fresh Fruit since Jell-O lost the lawsuit and it was pressed by the other guys in the Dead Kennedys. And so he just wrote fake Kennedys on the front of it. <laughs> I've had Rollins on the phone or in my studio while we work through things. The guys from Interpol who I worked with things on, they sent me physical photographs and scraps of different things that they were inspired by that they wanted me to incorporate. And then I would mock something up and email it to them or shoot photos and send it to them. But yeah, I'm really cool with collaboration being in person or at a distance. But I really believe in finding a balance between intuition and spontaneity and brutally honest self-analysis and course correction. <laughs> Shepard, you have pretty impeccable taste in music, but you have to admit it wasn't always so. Like you admitted to me recently what the first single was that you bought when you were a kid. I used to listen to some real rubbish. Um, <laughs> uh, but my postman, my policeman, my Native American neighbor would not say that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was eight years old, the first single I bought was YMCA by the village people. And I grew up in South Carolina. I was not exposed to anything cool until I was a little bit older when I got into skateboarding and punk rock. But I listened to the radio. I would just go through the dial and whether it was ELO or Steve Miller or Olivia Newton-John or Wings, those are some of the things I remember liking as a little kid. So I save my allowance and I go to Woolworths with my dad this was, I think, 1978 or early 79. Please describe um, for our audience what a Woolworths is. <laughs> Woolworths is a department store, and they had a little record section. And this was when you bought singles as 45s. So you go to the record Please section. Please describe for our people what 45s and singles are. A, four, a 45 is a, is a seven-inch vinyl record with uh, usually one song What is vinyl? Side. <laughs> All right. Okay, let him, um, let him tell the and, story. Uh, it's a petroleum product, one of the few <laughs> I love. So I go to the wall of records, and it's the top 20, and at number two is YMCA by the Village People. Travesty. And, and travesty. I didn't even look at number one or number three. I just was like, Dad, how is this possible? A mistake has been made. Someone needs to be on the firing line here because this is the number one song in the universe. You know, there's no question. Nothing else touches it. But years later, I found out that it was Sheik's La Freak that had kept it from number one. And that's actually a really good song. And Sheik was Niall Rogers' band, yeah, right? Yeah, Who went exactly. on to produce David Bowie's Let's Dance. And Debbie Harry's first solo right. record. Oh and We Are Family by Sister Sledge. There you go. Yeah. Nice. But um, I wasn't into the whole disco versus rock and roll thing. And then later on, after being incredibly ashamed of that record, I got into The Clash and then I got into DJing. And I was once DJing Rock the Casbah and 
the extended mix of Rock the Casbah has bongos, and I listened to it side by side with YMCA, and I was like, Rock the Casbah is a freaking disco song. They're both 125 <laughs> BPM. They both use bongos. It's like different <laughs> outfits and a different attitude, a little different lyrically, but like, you know, a lot of these things are very superficial. Like the Sex Pistols, we're not into music. We're into chaos. We want to destroy the music industry, but we will cover these Eddie Cochran classic rock songs and these Who songs. Um, you know, we want to destroy everything and start over, but we'll keep a few of the bits. Hey, listeners, you get to decide for yourselves if there's a reason Alan and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we play a song from his band or my band. So stick around. Shepard, I'm sure you know about the album by Lou Reed and John Cale, who were once in the Velvet Underground together, called Songs for Drella. It's basically a biography of Andy Warhol. And in it, there's a song called Work, in which Lou talks about Andy's work ethic. And in it, Lou says that if he had told Andy Warhol that he'd written 10 songs in a day, Andy would say, you should have written 15. You're only young once. (laughs) And, you know, I think about that song a lot whenever I'm fucking off. It's really inspiring to me. And you say you have the same kind of inspiration from Rollins and his work ethic. And in turn, I look at your creative output. And to be honest, I'm really inspired by you as well. Uh, It's nice of you to say. I mean, one, I feel totally worthless when I'm not working. So a self-esteem crisis I've turned into um, an asset instead of a liability. But (laughs) my dad told me when I was first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 16, my dad's a doctor and he's quite direct. And his name is Straight, Straight Ferry. My (laughs) first name is Frank. So sometimes when he says, son, we need to have a serious talk, I'd say, all right, dad, if you'll be straight with me, I'll be frank with you. (laughs) but anyway he said to me you know the good news is diabetics can live now before 1936 they just died because there was no injectable insulin but the bad news is you're probably going to live 20 years less than most people you'll have even more time shaved off if you don't manage your diabetes well so i've always felt like i had a ticking clock i need to make what i need to make not waste time isn't it also exacerbated by the fact that Blindness is sometimes a byproduct or a companion to diabetes. Yeah, if you've looked at the quality of my work, I've actually been blind for the past five years. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) No. (laughs) I wondered what happened at that moment. But I I manage my diabetes really well now. But when I was younger, I felt like I was immortal, indestructible. You're in jail all the time when they wouldn't give you insulin, right? Yeah. I mean, when I was in jail, they'd always take my insulin away. But I try to take those feelings of defiance and apply them in a more positive way where I used to be a little reckless. Um, yeah, I guess maybe it's maturity, but I still feel like I've got that spark to speak out against injustice and to not just fall in line or follow the path of least resistance like a lot of people do, especially as they get older. But I'm just trying to be a little more thoughtful, a little more strategic about the way I do all of it. Can you tell me about your 50 song list? Yeah, sure. 
when my 50th birthday was approaching, it sounded horrible, but at least I could do something fun and put together a playlist and talk about how music had really shaped my evolution as a consumer of culture and a thinker and any number of other ways. So it goes chronologically, starting with the village people and then going into Blondie, Rolling Stones, Devo, The Go-Go's, Joan Jett, and Violent Femmes, Sex Pistols, Clash. I, I can't, from memory, name every single one of them sequentially. And that's because you're over 50. Yeah, because you're over 50. <laughs> but yeah, and it was really fun to put that together for a Spotify playlist and then write about all the stuff and have that on my website. You know, at age 50, a lot of this music is telling at least part of the story of my life. And because I love vinyl and I've made lots of tributes to vinyl, I made a little screen print with a 45 sleeve that was my 50 at 50 playlist that I was going to give out to all the people at my birthday party that had a sticker that was a QR code that would take you directly to the playlist. So, nice. you know, I'm not analog versus digital. I'm like, let's get those two in synchronicity, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just go through a couple of these songs because some of these are actually my favorites too. The Guns of Brixton by The Clash. i am pose a question for you. What's the better gun song? The Guns of Brixton or Eaton Rifles by The Jam? Well, um, when I hear Eaton Rifles, I think of Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg. <laughs> totally. So it's harder for me to take it as seriously. I love the jam. The whole In the City record, their first album is, I think, a great punk record. But then I love their evolution to becoming more of like a mod soul band. And yeah. I'm Going Underground is one of the songs that I love musically and for its irony that the jams decide to sing, I'm going underground, and then it goes to number one. It couldn't <laughs> have gone more above ground. <laughs> Perfect capsule on the jam. But the Guns of Brixton, to me, I love that song for a lot of different reasons. I think it's great musically, but I love that it's Paul Simon and the bassist song. He wrote the music, he wrote the lyrics, and Joe Strummer encouraged him. He had been somebody that felt he was the least talented member. He had just started playing bass with colored stickers to show him where to put his fingers that Mick Jones was helping him with when the clash formed. And he was chosen because he was a very good looking guy and he looked great on stage. Stylish. But he ultimately learned how to play and wrote what might be my favorite clash song. It's a really cool story about the value of just diving in and doing it. Let me do just a little quick sidebar. I'll just insert a little Radiohead story. Is being up in Canada, Tom had to do an interview on much music, and I asked him who he wanted to bring with him. And he's like, Well, I'll bring John. And I'm like, Why do you want to bring Johnny? He won't say anything. He was like, Yeah, but he'll look good <laughs> on radio. <laughs> it was color radio. Right, right. Oh, yeah. All right, just a couple more. Add it up. Now we're Milwaukee guys, so we've been with the Violent Femmes from the beginning. And oh yeah, I mean, talk about a bolt out of the blue. The first Violent Femmes album. Where did that come from? It doesn't sound like anything else. They never topped it or came close to it. I don't think. But who could? It's really one of the great albums of all time, don't you think? I do. I think it's one of the best ever. And at the time that I first heard it, 
was right before I first heard Nevermind the Bollocks or the Sex Pistols, right before I first heard Black Flag, Agent Orange. And I knew that punk was supposed to sound distorted. So when I heard the Violent Femmes, there was this collision of different emotions because I loved the way the record sounded. I loved the lyrics. It was so infectious, but that it was sort of amplified acoustic. I knew was like, not right. They, you know, they're not supposed to do it this way. Later on, I really appreciated that, but that album was a really important album for me. And it was one of the first albums where I was like, I have this over here to myself with a couple of friends. It's our secret handshake. No one else is going to understand it. The world doesn't understand me anyway, but these five people in the Violent Femmes, we all understand each other. The whole album is great, but Add It Up is the one that's got so much drama, so much intensity. It's so great lyrically. You know, I was uh, a virgin when I heard it and longing for female companionship and validation. And there couldn't have been a more perfect anthem for me at that time. Oh, blister in the sun, right? That's about masturbation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, well I, I didn't I didn't know that, actually, Alan, when I played that with my band, the junior year talent show at my high school. <laughs> well, go, you know, Gordon Gano, he wrote a lot of that stuff in high school. Yeah. I've seen them play a couple of times and they're still fantastic live. Really, really a great band. Okay. So you also have Whip It on here. And I was at the 1980 Devo concert in Milwaukee. And a friend of mine recently said to me, hey, do you have the picture from that concert? I was dressed in um, swimming goggles. I had a stocking cap on and a garbage bag. <laughs> then I look on YouTube and there's a news story about New Wave and I'm on it with my friends in the background. Wow. From 1980. And I was absolutely blown away. I was like, I don't have the picture, but we're on video. Well, you know, Devo was the closest thing to counterculture music probably that I heard on Top 40 Radio. And I used to call and request that until the people from the radio station were like, that song hasn't been in the charts for six months. Stop calling us. Stop <laughs> bothering us. But, you know, I'm good friends with Mark Mothersbaugh now, and I'm friends with Jerry also. I mean, I'm looking at a signed copy of Are We Not Men, where Mark did his drawings with smoke coming out of Chichi Rodriguez's ears, and it says, to Shepard, a true comrade in reality re-education, we must all obey. <laughs> oh my God, that's fantastic. That's great. But, you know, Whip It is not my favorite Devo song. I like Whip It a lot. But I think Gates of Steel, Jocko Homo, Uncontrollable Urge, Girl You Want. I mean, there's a ton of Devo songs that I like more than that. But Whip It was my gateway to Devo. Okay, on to one of my favorite songs ever, Moon Age Daydream off David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album. Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars is one of the most celebrated Bowie albums for good reason. It's a perfect album all the way through. It is. And Moon Age Daydream, it's got all sorts of stuff going on in it that if you said, oh, Shepard, do you like saxophone? Do you like strings? Nah, probably not. It's probably going to ruin the song. And then I listened to it and it's perfect. It rocks. It's artsy. It's operatic. There's just so much to it that I think is brilliant. 
Bowie is one of my all-time favorite musical artists because he was constantly inspired and evolving and collaborating and fearless. And even though I don't think every new phase was as successful, at least he kept pushing himself. He is the epitome of artistic evolution. I think he would develop a sound over two or three albums, and then he would start over with a new thing, and it was as good and remarkably different. Yeah. I mean, the Beatles, I think, did it in a much more truncated period of time, but Bowie, over a career, I don't think there's anyone that's had the artistic growth, nothing like that whole 70s wave of album after album of insane shit that no one had done before and him just kind of developing and anointing a new sound. I mean, he's my favorite. Okay. So given my stint as Radiohead's on the road babysitter during the Pablo Honey era, (laughs) I can't let us end this part of the conversation without mentioning that the song Paranoid Android from their OK Computer album also made your 50 at 50 playlist. OK Computer, I think might be the masterpiece album of the 90s beautiful record, powerful record, a creatively adventurous record, yet it still retains enough of a recognizable rock form that I I think it was accessible also. It's just riding all these lines so beautifully. And yeah, Paranoid Android, it's like something that a classical composer like Beethoven (laughs) or Mozart or If they were working with modern instrumentation, what would they make? It would sound like Paranoid Android. And I I mentioned that to Tom York once. And he was like, oh, yeah, Mozart was our biggest influence on that song. He takes the piss a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And he also doesn't like talking about anything from his past. He just wants to work on the next thing, which I I appreciate. But, you know, I'm just a, a really big fan of that album. Moving in a completely different direction, you have, I think, the longest rap sheet of any guest we've had on the show. Can I pose this in a more Spinal Tap way? Spinal Tap in this movie couldn't get arrested, (laughs) as opposed to you, who've been arrested 18 times. Could you give us your amazing story about your Times Square arrest? It was actually downtown. Oh, Houston and Broadway, right? Yeah, Houston and Broadway, but, you know, very iconic corner, very busy corner. I have to back up a little that this happened in 2000. And in 1996, I had my first arrest in New York in Soho while putting a poster on a building. A guy pulls over in an unmarked car, jumps out, says, get up against the wall. And the building was already covered in other posters and graffiti that I was putting stuff on. But this guy recognized my work and said, I've seen you work in six precincts. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, there were these famous bombers then called Cost and Revs. And he was like, you're going to be joining your friends Cost and Revs in jail, your new home. And I was really, really worried about it. But back then I had a Tony Hawk style, like floppy bangs haircut. I let that carry over from the 80s way too long into the 90s. And so that guy arrested me. I actually got out time served because I had no arrest record. And the undercover Vandal Squad guy did not connect me to six precincts worth of stuff. And the building owner 
did not press charges. So the only thing they had on me was a can of spray paint in my bag, which they said was a tool of criminal mischief. Mm. You know, semantics are really important when it comes to the law. <laughs> For me, it was a tool of environmental embellishment. <laughs> Your honor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so four years later, I was back in New York. I really wanted to do a piece at the corner of Houston and Broadway above this huge DKNY mural. And I figured out how to get to the roof. So my cousin was with me, asked my cousin, grab that eight foot Obey icon face poster out of the back of the car and throw it in my backpack. We go to the roof. I put up half of the eight foot face leaning over with my brush and my glue, then pull the other half out of the bag, start to unfold it. I realize he gave me two left halves. <laughs> so I say to my cousin, like, man, you got to go back to the car right now while I'm up here, like finishing gluing this down really well. And so he does that. He comes back up. I put the right half up, put the extra left half back in my backpack. And then he and I go back down to the street. We're really, really happy. This is such an awesome fame spot, like thousands and thousands of people per day, per hour are seeing it. It's super visible. We walk across the street to celebrate. We pick up a couple of Asahi beers in brown bags and are sipping them on the corner, looking up at our handiwork. And I guess, I don't even recall this, but it was such a unconscious force of habit. I always would just put stickers on everything. He put a sticker on a pole. I put a sticker on a pole. But we're sitting there basking in the glory of this piece. And all of a sudden, this chubby dude in jeans, shorts, and gold chains and a mullet walks up. And I was like, oh, God, this guy's going to hassle me for money. And then he lifts up his shirt and there's a badge. Oh, no. And then another guy who looks like the same guy but skinnier, he walks up. And then this woman that looks like the same guy but a woman, all of them like <laughs> puffy Reeboks, jean shorts, gold chains, mullets. They had a look going, the Vandal Squad uniform. <laughs> First, I thought, oh, they're going to bust us for the beers. But then they go, um, empty your pockets. I had a couple of stickers in my pocket. My cousin had a couple of stickers in his pocket. And they were like, we spotted you putting those stickers up over there. You're going to jail. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're going to be going to jail over a couple of stickers. They had a station wagon that they had pulled right up on the sidewalk and they put me in the back seat and they put my cousin like in the little kids way, way back. <laughs> and so we're there and the windows open. It's summer. It's really hot. And the cop, one, this is the same cop that busted me in 96, but oh, no. he didn't recognize me because I now <laughs> had a shaved head. And he says to me like, you thought you would get away with this? I busted the real Andre the Giant guy back in 96 or so. You know, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I thought these stickers were really cool. I bought them from um mail order thing in a graffiti magazine. And um, he's looking at my ID. You're 30 years old. You doing this dumb stuff, vandalizing shit when you could be out at a bar getting a broad drunk, taking her back home and banging her. And I was like, it's amazing that borderline date rape is not offensive, <laughs> but putting up stickers is, as far as these guys go. <laughs> Giuliani's New York. No, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, then the next thing you know, he's tapping his fingers on the roof of the station wagon with the window open with his gut coming in the window about six inches from my face. And he's whistling. And then all of a sudden his fingers stop tapping. 
And they, they call me Frank because my ID says Frank Shepard Ferry. So they just assume my name is Frank. So he goes, Frank, I bet you're never going to guess what I'm looking at right now. This idiot that makes these things, it's a vandal. He's got something going on down the street at the new museum. I saw the pictures in the window advertising for it. And I had a collaboration with this furniture company called Deform that was up Broadway, just a block or two. And so he goes, I bet you're never going to guess what I'm looking at. He pulls me out of the car, shoves me up against the car and points to the huge, the eight foot poster up on the building. I said, I didn't have anything to do with that. How would I? I mean, how would you even put something like that up? I said, I'm sure that's an ad done by the new museum for their exhibit down the block. You said you saw ads for it. And then his skinny sidekick goes, um, I don't know. I mean, you could have just like blown it up at Kinko's or something. And then he goes, shut up. They can't do that at Kinko's. <laughs> and of course, that was exactly how I did it. Oh, my goodness. Then they put me back in the car and I realized in my backpack, there's still the other left half of the eight foot face that matches perfectly what they've just seen on the building. So... With him resuming positions, having his fingers on the roof of the car with his gut hanging in and me six inches away from him, I have to figure out how to get that thing out of my backpack, which is on the seat next to me. So I pull it over while cuffed, wow. quietly unzip it, gently pull the poster out, nudge it over to the edge of the seat, let it drop on the floor, and then ever so quietly slide it under the seat. <laughs> And he didn't see me or hear me doing any of this. Uh, you know, then we get to the police station. We're getting booked in. And my cousin had borrowed a pair of pants from me that were from a graffiti slash streetwear brand called Triple Five Soul that had a secret pocket down in the calf area. And he had about 300 more stickers in there. So when they patted him down, they opened that up and they just accordion and slide down the hall. And he's diving after stickers and everybody's laughing. And he's, give me those way I want to, you know, and um, <laughs> picking up stickers. And then, you know, his sidekick goes, Andre the Giant stickers. I've been wanting one of those for my toolbox for years. I mean, this stuff, you couldn't make it up. It was incredible. But then... They separate me and my cousin, and they're asking us both, what's the real story with the other one? Like, if you tell us the truth, we'll let you off easy, and he'll be the one that takes the fall. They said that to both of us. Neither one of us was going to talk at all. But um, You lived the prisoner dilemma. Yeah, we lived it. But then probably the most surreal thing was how they were intermittently being really hard and being like, you're going to be in jail for years. This is a felony. I'm like, putting up stickers is not a felony. And then they would pivot over to, if you got a couple bucks on you before they take all your cash and everything away, I can go get you a Snapple. And at one point, they're going to call me to have me go get my mug shots and be fingerprinted. And in the background, Eminem's The Real Slim Shady is playing. And they all of a sudden all start dancing in their puffy Reeboks and jean shorts and going, with the real Frank Ferry, please stand up. Please stand up. Please stand up. Will the real Frank Ferry get your fingerprints? Uh, you know, they were singing everything to that. And I was like, this really is just surreal. It's almost <laughs> worth it to be here for this. Come on. You ripped that off of a Reno 911 episode. You had to. Reno 911 had nothing on the downtown <laughs> New York Vandal Squad. But anyway, the guy never figured out that I was the same guy he arrested in 96. I got out. They took my insulin away. I got really, really sick. I got a tattoo after that, my only tattoo. 
and it says diabetic. And the reason is if you were to die in jail from not getting your insulin, which I've been denied my insulin a lot and gotten really sick, when you're being booked, they photograph all your scars and tattoos as well as your mugshot and your fingerprints. So if I died, my wife at least would have some recourse. She was still my girlfriend then. She's my wife now. But it was her idea. And she said, you know, they're going to say, oh, we had no idea he was diabetic. Like, what about this photograph of the tattoo that says diabetic that you've got right there in your records? Oh, my goodness. That's quite a story. Unbelievable. So you're Frank. So was Bruno Kirby talking about you when he said, if you'd loved and lost like Frank? (laughs) If you've been denied your insulin like Frank. This has been really wonderful, Shepard. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about your work, about what you're up to, that kind of thing? Well, they can find that on my website or my Instagram. My website is obeygiant.com and my Instagram is at obeygiant. Pretty easy. I'm always working on new projects. Uh, Right now, I have a Bad Brains collaboration and a Black Flag collaboration a few murals coming up. I've got some museum shows I'm doing this year and uh, always doing stuff with my clothing line. And I've been commenting a lot on voting rights lately where people say, just shut up and make art, which uh, I'm sorry I won't do. But uh, yeah, you can see what I'm doing and be ired or inspired at obeygiant.com. Thanks, Shepard. It's really great. I'm doing stuff for voting rights, but anything you're involved in, you just let me know because I'd love to help. Thanks, man. Thanks, Alan. Good to see you, Alex. You know, Alex, we were chatting earlier about not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Now, I consider myself a deeply flawed person. That makes two of us. You're deeply flawed or you agree that I'm deeply flawed? Both. (laughs) I appreciate that. Now that we both agree, I'm deeply flawed and, you know, I don't think I'm reflexively going to do the right thing. But to my credit, that makes me sometimes overcompensate and go further into the light because I'm conscious of what I should do as opposed to what I want to do, which is nothing. For instance, when I was an advertising copywriter in another life, I was offered a big freelance job at Leo Burnett ad agency in Chicago. It was a very well-paying gig that would have employed me for months, if not longer, and I really needed the cash because I had just had my first daughter. But But? they wanted me to work on Merit cigarettes. (coughs) Ooh. Yes. Now, my dad smoked, and he died from it, Huh. and I was not going to be responsible for encouraging people to kill themselves. So I turned it down. And I was never asked to work there again. Mm. That did not make our lives any easier. But, you know, no amount of money is worth doing something you consider to be the wrong thing. It may sound like fortune cookie wisdom, but the right choice is most often not the easy choice. And that said, what you made is the admirable choice, old chum. Thank you, Alex. Of course, later I did ads for Monsanto, Coke Industries, BP, Wait, Exxon, what? What? Scientology, huh? Union Carbide, Purdue I, Pharma, MyPillow, Joel Osteen. 
Nambla? I take it back. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I didn't do any of that. Thank you to Shepard for sharing his stories and for giving us this team epic quote. I guess we're all lucky that anybody cares what we're doing. And that's how we feel about you, listener, especially if you've made it this far into the episode. Obey Giant? How about Obey Spinal Tap? Watch the movie again on iTunes and Amazon Prime. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. This episode was edited by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEPShow, and join our mailing list on our website, TMEPShow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller, and on behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman, thanks for listening. For today's tune, I'm going to play a song Mitchell Cooper off the Falling Willenda's eponymous first album. The song is based on a distant relation of mine, Wall Street felon Michael Milken, who did all sorts of bad crap. So hope you enjoy. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. Mitchell Cooper works into the dark. At the Cooper Industrial Park.
His name is Colin Federal. 